0: Welcome to the Hearts Entwined
1: podcast. This is your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts. And today, listeners, I'm excited to have a gentleman on the show because we don't get many guys on this podcast show. So it's always great when I get a great guest. And his name is Dr. Thomas Jordan. He's a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, and he's the author of a book called Learn to Love. So welcome, Dr. Jordan.
2: Ah, Thank you for inviting me, Lynn. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Now, what I always like to ask guests, Tom, is what actually led you to be doing what you're doing currently? Because we usually got a backstory. And if you don't mind sharing that with our listeners, it's always interesting to know the reason why people end up doing what they're doing.
2: Yes, uh, three things. Uh, one is this relentless divorce rate that I've been staring at as a clinical psychologist for many years, trying to figure out what the solution is to the divorce rate, which is, according to latest statistics, 50% on first marriage, 60 on second, and 73% in third marriages. Now, something's wrong with that. Um, and I uh, made it a project. I collected information about love life issues. Um, uh, the second reason is... Uh, uh, the patients that I saw in my office over the years that presented with love life difficulties of one sort or another, um, the repetition that was taking place in people's love lives, the same mistakes over and over again, and I begin to under, I began to understand that there's a learning experience involved that will help us understand the potential solution to this problem, this divorce, relentless divorce rate as I refer to it. The third reason is I made corrections in my own love life. Um, in a personal analysis that I was in, in the uh, late 80s and 90s. And as a consequence of that work, uh, I was able to get married and I've been married for 28 years. And um, so I wanted to understand what changes i made and be able to put it in a form that people could read, perhaps work on in a very specific way to, to work on their love lives and make healthy changes in it. So I, I wrote the book learn to love guide to healing a disappointing love life as a consequence of those three.
1: Uh, yeah. Excellent. I love it. So what are you, did you sort of like find I'm presuming with human nature being what it is sort of specific commonalities that sort of led to the breakdowns of relationships? And if so, what were those things? Well,
2: um, <clears throat> Uh, basically, I think the cause of this relentless divorce rate is what we learn about love relationships unconsciously, without awareness, from the relationship experiences we have in life. Uh, And your love life begins the day you're born and ends at the end of life. So it's any and every relationship involving the emotion of love. So there's a learning experience. The good news is If something's learned, it can be unlearned and something better learned. So it's something that we can work with. We can understand it. The first step is always to bring this into consciousness. And I, in the book, talk about a method that I offer. I call it the unlearning method. It's a three-step method where people are invited to think of it as a a consciousness-raising experience where you become aware of what I call your psychological love life. So my perspective is working on your love life from the inside out. What we bring with us into our love lives uh, in terms of the type of relationship we set up when we fall in love, we can set up a healthy relationship that promotes the love we feel. We could also set up an unhealthy relationship that stifles and destroys the love we feel. Um, And I think that's helping us understand that 50% divorce rate. It's like a a toss of the dice. It's chance. Um, I think it's more about what people have learned unconsciously that they reenact in their love life and as a consequence, stifle the love that they're experiencing. Um, Step two in that unlearning process is uh, inviting people to challenge what they've learned. Once they become aware of it, they can tag it. They can understand it. They can see it. They can interfere with the repetition and replication that's taking place. And step three is to do something very different. Uh, I like to think of the opposite. The opposite is uh, therapeutic. For example, if I grew up in a home where there's parental abandonment, for example, um, and I replicate it by finding people who are not emotionally available in my love life, uh, becoming aware of that problem is the first step. Second step is to challenge it by understanding what's unhealthy that I'm replicating and questioning it and not allowing it just to mindlessly replicate in one relationship or another. And the third step is to do the opposite. The opposite of abandonment is commitment and attachment. So understanding the importance of commitment, being able to differentiate people who can make a commitment from people who can't. It becomes a study that invites a person to consciously steer their love life in a new direction.
1: How do you think, I mean, if like you said, you know, a lot of it is this unawareness that we're conditioned to be the way we are. But I suppose if we've got, say, a pattern of, um, you know, keeping people at arm's length and, you know, because of maybe abandonment issues that we, we um, were on the end of as children, for example, um, how do you unlearn that? You know, how you so all very well saying, you know, you, you got to learn to commit, but how does somebody who's not used to or doesn't know how to commit learn that?
2: <laughs> well, as they begin to understand their own particular psychological love life, they'll identify abandonment, to use your example, and then they'll end, they'll identify and what I talk about as after effects. What happens when we have an hurt, a hurtful experience of abandonment? What happens is people learn to protect themselves when they're in love relationships. Keeping people at arm's length is a defense mechanism, so to speak. It's a way to manage one's hurt, not to allow oneself to be hurt over and over and over again. So that after effect needs to be looked at as well. So we can learn how to replicate abandonment and we can learn how to protect ourselves from hurt. And all of that is a learned experience that's in the psychological love life. Once you become aware of it, now you have tools to understand what needs to be unlearned. Uh, unlearning that defense mechanism is gonna be very important because when people keep relationships at arm's length, they're protecting themselves from something. Uh, very common in my work with people over the years is introducing them to the defense mechanisms they're using. And what happens there is that people begin to talk about the hurt that they experience as a consequence of the abandonment, for example. That is a healing experience that offers people a possibility to heal that earlier experience and soften the use of those defense mechanisms and take a little more risk, appropriate risks, risks that are based on good judgment. Uh, for example, with someone who suffered an abandonment, picking people who can make a commitment and being able to distinguish them one from the other. Um, That's very important. So that's some of the work that people can do once they become aware of the psychological love life that they possess.
1: What other common things do you find that came into your study um, that caused unhealthy relationships other than, say, abandonment, for example, that you gave earlier?
2: Yeah, I have, uh, I collected 12, what I call unhealthy relationship experiences. Uh, Abandonment is at the top of the list, abuse, uh, control over control, uh, dependency, um, dishonesty, uh, exploitations, various kinds that can be reenacted in a love relationship. Intrusions, which can violate people in certain ways in a love relationship. Uh, Mistrust. Uh, Neglect is a big one. Uh, People can replicate neglect in their adult love lives because that's what they experienced earlier on. Uh, Rejection is another. And self-centeredness. Being exposed to self-centeredness oftentimes invites people to recreate that in their love life, either by finding self-centered partners or being self-centered themselves. So those 12 were, and oh, I, I left one out, dominance. Uh, dominance is another uh, unhealthy relationship experience that can replicate. And those 12, I collected them after, you know, about 30 years or so of looking at people's love lives and seeing certain ones show up over and over again. So I compiled that list, but that's what I have so far. It's evolving.
1: <laughs> and do you think, you know, there's typically uh, some that more commonly pertain to the masculine and others that more commonly pertain to the feminine, or do you think it's a bit of a mix across both sexes? Um, I have uh, I
2: don't think gender really differentiates very well. I think uh, these are relationship experiences that can occur regardless of gender. Um, How they're enacted and replicated can be different. For example, uh, men might be more inclined to be dominant, for example. Um, Women might be more inclined to be passive if dominance is something they're replicating. And if passivity was something they were taught by their own mothers in Mm. their families of origin. So I think the enactment, the replication of these unhealthy experiences might be a bit different here and there. But I think at the end of the line, it's pretty much not a not a not the best way to differentiate. I think personal experience is better than gender.
1: Yeah, you know? absolutely. I'd say I 100% agree with that in my own experience with my own life and with my, you know, uh, what I've discovered through my own research with my own clients as well. So I 100% agree with that, except like you say, it can show up in a, little, in a slightly different way depending on whether you're a man or a woman. So yeah, yeah, I just yeah. wondered if that was your experience too. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. In, uh,
2: uh, in chapter five in my book, I use myself as a case study, you know, a little easier than getting permission to use patients and so on. So Uh, I grew up in a family where my mother was dependent, controlling, and a bit self-centered. I took those qualities into my love life unconsciously. And the way I set it up is I looked for women with those kinds of qualities, unbeknownst to me that I was doing so. Uh, And here's here's the real shocker. When I, and I, if I found someone who wasn't, I perceived that they were. <laughs> so <laughs> I it was so ingrained in my learning experience that I saw what I was expecting to find. And so when my analyst was able to point that out and and, 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 and suggest to me that I was using my mother's template in my love life it was really shocking. I I kind of stopped dating for a while and paid a little more attention to what was going on in my own psychology. And I found that uh, that period of time that I was being a little more introspective in my love life, um, it paid off in the end because I married a woman who was independent, not self-centered, and not controlling so I guess I guess that's why I'm still married 28 years later
1: (laughs) (laughs) congratulations well done I I really appreciate that you've shared your own experience there and that you've been you know prepared to be vulnerable and and courageous enough to do so in your book as well you know um, because it is um, I think for the most part um, a bit scary you know to, to do that initially and sometimes you know when I, I, have, I speak to listeners that have uh, heard specific e- episodes. They, they are, are, you know, wondering if they're the only people that experience that. Uh, <laughs> and, and I uh, want them to oh, know that they're not.
2: No, no, it's, a, it's very human. And, you know, what troubles me is that people don't think of their love life as something they can work on. Uh, I think that's probably due to the fact that the family of origin is the major classroom where love life issues are taught again, unconsciously. And we've been very careful about taking apart the family of origin, especially as a source of learning, healthy or unhealthy. But I think in the 21st century, we're a little more willing to look at the family of origin as a classroom. And, you know, it's not not, um, disrespectful to understand my mother's influence on me. Uh, I love my mother. I love her still. She's no longer with us, but I love her. My mother was even interested in her own psychology to some extent, especially toward the end of her life. And to understand her is to understand my psychology. And I think she would be in favor of that. Had she been alive to read the book, I think she would have gotten a kick out of it and, and, and had many questions to ask. Because I think there were things about her love life that she could have worked on and she would be very curious about it. So I believe that looking into our family of origins and and really families of origin and, and really understand what did I learn in this experience that is now in control of my love life is a very important beginning question to invite people to see their love lives as something they can work on, like they work on their work lives, they work on their educational lives, their financial lives, their their medical lives. It's a part of our life that we can do something about. It's very tragic, Lynn, and I've met many people, unfortunately, that have this profile to, you know, you're in your 50s and 60s and you've repeated the same mistake over and over again without awareness. There's something Mm. about that that's very... It's moving for me, and I, I, I just wanted to offer something that people might use as a guidebook, as ideas that will begin the process, teach them how to begin the process of working on their love lives.
1: I wondered what your views are, Tom, on, um, you know, um, relationships naturally running their course, because um, for me, I was in a 23-year relationship with my ex-husband. Um, we had a happy-ish relationship there you know there wasn't any anger or um, abuse or any sort of negativity within that relationship but I do feel like friendships do you know that it did run its course so our divorce wasn't necessarily on the back of what I would term an unhealthy relationship so um, although I'm in the industry and I want to you know like yourself educate people to have healthier relationships I'm not necessarily thinking that um, you know, everybody's going to have a relationship for life on the back of knowing what we know, so to speak.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that people can fall out of love with each other um, and that uh, they can, and the way I would understand that is people can grow apart. Uh, there's still growth implied in that statement. Yes, you know, it's not a bad thing to grow apart in my opinion. And when that happens, relationships can come to an end. The thing about love that's very important to understand, and I say this in my book, I say, this is a book about, I say I, I introduce in my preface, this is not a book about love. And the second statement is, this is a book about love relationships. Love itself is a spiritual, biological, psychological phenomena. We can't control it. Mm-hmm. We can't control it. We can only experience it we can take care of it when it occurs and it has its own life cycle so in that respect i think that love is is its own thing it'll 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 come it'll go it'll not come it'll not go but the point is that it's not something that we human beings can directly change manipulate and so on the relationship we form when we fall in love That we can work with to increase the probability that the love will be healthy. But as you point out, if it's in the cards for the love to end, because two people are growing apart, that's going to happen no matter what you do, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And that's literally what happened in my relationship. You know, um, that relationship ended in 2009. And it just, you know, I felt as though it, it just come to a natural end uh, and ran its course and you know subsequently I entered into uh, another great relationship and you know the the thing is that I think sometimes there's the expectation that you know it should last for life and hopefully you know um, you know with some relationships that that can happen but ultimately I think the, the most beneficial thing we can educate people about is to always have a healthy relationship regardless of how long it lasts. Absolutely right.
2: <laughs> Absolutely right. That's what I'm focused on. Is and and the learning that's involved in whether or not a relationship is healthy or not healthy. Learning is a wonderful user-friendly concept. You know, people can relate to learning. Where we start learning from the beginning of life. We have school experiences that emphasize learning, and uh, uh, unconscious learning. I think is a bit of a problem. Because unconscious learning stays in the closet, so to speak, and it's not inactive. You know, it's uh, un- the things we learn without consciousness, which, by the way, occur, a lot of them occur earlier in life when we don't have the words, perhaps, to structure what we're learning, to create a consciousness of what we're learning, Um but a lot that what we learn unconsciously can be very active in the background affecting what we do and how we experience our love lives. And that's, that can be a problem. It can also be, <clears throat> it can also be a positive thing. you know. If you grow up in a healthy family that teaches you healthy patterns of life, then it's not really a problem. <laughs> uh, and if you're not aware of your psychological love life and you're, you're creating a healthy relationship Well, I mean, you can go on to other things, I assume, you know, and not have to worry about it. So, but consciousness is most important in a situation where repetition exists. And that's something that I observed in my practice over the years. It's the repetition and replication that's a problem, you know? Um,
1: Yeah, and because obviously that repetition is usually around unhealthy, like you say, conditioning, that we're not even aware that we're – you know, responsible for because it's quite easy, isn't it? You know, to sort of um, hear from clients that they blame their, their partner and, and they say it's him or it's her, when really they're not actually looking at themselves and taking responsibility. Well, what's your part in this? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. In fact, I think one of the most powerful tools you can use as a couple, both privately and in a couple or marital therapy is to become aware of your own psychological love life and each other's so that you can see evidence for uh, patterns that might show up that your partner sees before you do. Um, I remember when I first got married, my wife, Victoria, um, (laughs) (coughs) knowing a little bit about my history, she pointed out on on a couple of occasions I'm not your mother. (laughs) 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 Right. But I had to like, okay, control your defenses, control your defenses, (laughs) take it in, take it in, understand what it means, you know? Um, But I think that I learned something that in a marriage, when you invite someone in that closely, um, he or she is able to see things about you that might be of use as you uh, navigate your history and how it shows up in your relationship with your partner. So um, it's good to have a sense of what we've learned and and what, the, what our partners have learned so we can help each other navigate those replications and repetitions when they show up in a relationship. And they might show up without any awareness at all, as in that example I gave you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, uh,
1: uh, what, what has been, do you think, the biggest um, insight you've had in your, if you don't mind sharing, in your relationship with your wife that you wasn't aware of previously?
2: Uh, I would say, and I always say this because that's a very, that's an excellent question. It's, it's asked commonly in my podcast interviews, um, the importance of communication. Communication is key. Um, relationships are not um, peaches and cream, as they say. Everything's wonderful. There's things to work out simply because two individuals are involved. And when you have two individuals in a relationship, there's bound to be disagreements, misunderstandings, miscommunications, etc. cetera. So being able to communicate, especially about relationship issues, is very important. And oftentimes, it's not something you can do easily. I'm very realistic about this. I don't think it's something that a couple just jumps into. I think it's, it's cultivated. Being able to talk about relationship issues is cultivated. Uh, I remember, again, my own personal experience with Victoria, I remember very early on, uh, when my son was born, uh, we had a disagreement about something. And right in the middle of it, she li- She leaves the conversation and goes into her office and closes the door. And, and I'm sitting in the living room. Well, what just happened? Like, I'm unfinished. I got this hot rock in my belly. And I'm going to sit here and pretend I don't have it. So I got up and I went into her office and I sat on the couch. And she looked at me like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, and I said something to the effect, I'm unfinished. We need to keep talking. And I think my wife learned something about me that day that uh, I'm not going to coexist in a relationship with unfinished business, you know, amassing resentment and, and unhappiness. I want conversation. I value conversation. I do that for a living. I think it's important when people are in a relationship to be able to solve problems with each other. That communication is the vehicle that allows people to solve problems. And when they're talking about hurts, when they're talking about disappointments, when they're talking about their own personal experience and how it relates to the relationship, that's when they're really in the meat and potatoes of the uh, communication that needs to take place. And I'm not thinking, I'm not saying or suggesting you do it every day. Uh, Every once in a while, as needed, is a very important thing.
1: So what would your advice be to a couple that are experienced arguments, regular arguments, how they handle, you know, the, the, what potentially sets one or the other of them off? How how would you, you know, go about giving them some resolution to to breaking that habit?
2: Yeah, um, I would suggest to them that they stop arguing for a moment and both acknowledge that something's happening in their relationship that needs to be understood, and that the arguments are not helping. I think that arguments indicate that people are talking at each other, and not with each other. So I I see that as something that a mutual effort to agree, okay, we have to stop arguing, we're going to escalate into fighting, and that gets destructive. Argument to fighting destruction, that's the the pathway. Uh, So from there, it's inviting people to be able to communicate about what they're needing each other to understand about what they're arguing about. Uh, Taking turns to speak is big. Who wants to go first? Okay, so while I'm talking, you're not going to interrupt. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm going to tell you what I need, tell you what I feel. Then I'm going to listen as you talk about what you think, what you feel, what you need. When things get slowed down like that, when people acknowledge that they have a mutual investment and in being able to understand what's going on on this slightly deeper level, I
1: think resolution is much easier to reach. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I think it's important as well to emphasize, you know, if you have got a couple in that situation that don't just sit there, you know, waiting to jump in with your two pennyworth. worth really listen to what your partner's <laughs> going to say. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, because I think in those situations, quite often we're not listening. We're just Absolutely. waiting for the opportunity to jump in with our right. I'm right opinion. <laughs>
2: right. And that and that's a version of talking at somebody. I'm yeah. just, I'm just, uh, you, I'm just waiting to talk at you. <laughs> I'm waiting till you're done talking at me, and then I'll talk at you. That escalates into talking over each other, fighting is next. So that's that's not good. Uh, nobody's talking. No Communication is something very different. It's not talking at each other. It's talking with each other. You're both committed to the idea to understand what the emotions, what the needs are. That people are trying to communicate because, you know, sometimes I used to do a lot of couple and marital therapy in the old days, you know, and there was something I used to say to couples that they would look at me a little scans and you know, like, what do you mean, doctor? You know, like, I, I would say that whatever's going on, the responsibility is 50 50. You know, <laughs> people yeah. have issues with that. idea. Uh, uh, It might look like this one's responsible, but this one's part of a relationship. So that means two people are contributing. One might be doing it in more subtle ways. One might be doing it more overt ways. But the issue is they're both contributing to the creation of something. And if they're able to take a look at that and communicate about it, they have a better chance at making changes that last and are going to be effective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What, what do you think, Um, you know, when you get a couple in, in that actually start arguing in front of you, how, what, how do you sort of handle that situation? Well, when they're,
2: when they're arguing in front of me, Yeah. You're saying, uh-huh. Well, Uh, I make an announcement. This is my office. (laughs) Everybody. (laughs) I determine what happens in this room. Uh, If they're arguing in front of me, uh, I might wait a little bit and learn something about how they argue. Uh, I'm going to take it in. They're showing me something. So I might not jump in right away, get a little information. And then when I feel like I've, 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 I've absorbed what I need to absorb then I would help them move into the stages that you and I just clarified, where I would uh, get a little bit more talking with each other going on. And for some couples that are very angry at each other, they're going to use me as a bridge. Yes. You know, she tells me, I tell him. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, okay. then, and then, uh, yeah. And at some point when the clarifications begin to add up and people get a little softer with each other, I move the bridge toward them. Mm. So I, I now go to the creative association place where I can relax. Think about my trip to Bermuda. No, 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 that's not not, (laughs) (laughs) that. But they experiment talk, talking to each other. They cross the bridge with each other and that's important. And that's a stage in marital or couples treatment that you want to get to um, so the beginnings can be hard. And then, of course, there's the uh, wife that drags her husband into treatment. He yeah. sits there with his arms folded, and she yeah. looks at the doctor and says, let me tell you all the things he does wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she, and she lists them. A, B, C, And he's looking at me like this, right? And what's <laughs> very important after that happens is I thank her to acknowledge the importance of what she said. But then I shift my attention to him and let him know that his voice is equally as important as hers, mm. because I don't want him to be the silent, hating, defensive, I got to get out of here, partner, that sits no. in the room. Um, so if I can invite him to speak and give his complaints, which may not be on a list, but may certainly be in his mind, equal hair airing then the possibility of negotiation is a little bit better because the couple will identify me as somebody who's advocating for their relationship, not taking sides with either partner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I always think there is one party or another that's (laughs) the hostage in the room that doesn't really want to. Exactly, good word, good word. I love it. (laughs) Right, and if you don't transform
2: that hostage into a willing participant, (laughs) you're in trouble. (laughs) You know, my wife does excellent couples treatment, um, and I she does it better than I do, so she does the lion's share of it at this point in our mutual practice, in our group practice. And uh, when when this happens and the woman drags, you know, drags the husband in, woman looks at the female therapist and says, yes, like I'm going, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Right. And the husband's sitting there. Oh, God, two women against one man. I'm going to crawl out the window, <laughs> you know, uh, but what's good, what she does is once the woman speaks, she she she, you know, prepares that. Very good. Thank you. And she has a way of talking to the husbands that invites them out and and they respond to her and her technique, her personalized technique of doing that is essential. Because as the man is talking, um, the wife is listening like, oh, I never heard you say this. I never heard you say that. So she's learning things about her husband. Whose conversation and dialogue is directed to my wife at that stage in the treatment. So uh, getting the husband to feel like he can relax, be open, be assertive in his own sense about what's wrong and what's right in the relationship, I think is a very important step and she does it very well.
1: Yeah, I think it's very important. I think he is usually the, the, the man in the relationship that's the reluctant one that's been dragged there as the hostage. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, I think it's very important to create that emotional safety for him to be able to feel comfortable enough to speak and and uh, you know say what he needs to say. I 100% agree with that.
2: Yeah. You know, over the years, I've had a number of men in my practice, uh, individual patients, who have come in to treatment with painful problems, hurtful problems, but they didn't have words for the pain or the hurt. Uh, Probably because their life experience taught them that feelings were inappropriate for a man to have or Mm, don't talk about feelings, don't express the feelings. So they're now suffering in my room trying to put what they're experiencing into words that I might understand. And I want to mention that when a man is is courageous to do this work, um, he becomes a better husband, a better father. The sensitivity in his ability to not only understand his emotions, but to express his emotions improves. And it's been very, very gratifying over the years to have a man uh, move in that direction of growth and, and witnessing it you know it's 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 quite powerful
1: it is i i i can actually empathize and and uh, you know have uh, had that experience myself you know where i've created that emotional safety for them to speak and it's it's very very heartwarming because like you say men are you know are literally conditioned and brought up to suppress suppress emotions and you know be uh, almost afraid to because um you know of being ridiculed or being uh perceiving it as weakness don't they rather than seeing as women do that that there it can be your greatest strength vulnerability can't
2: absolutely absolutely and there's a little formula that i learned many years ago that's been very helpful with this kind of issue and that is that when men or anybody for that matter are expressing anger and rage i think of hurt Yes. Anger, the common denominator for anger and rage, violence even, but that's that's when it really gets distorted and destructive. But anger and rage is, there's hurt there that's been converted for the defensive reasons we're talking about. So to invite men, patients to be able to identify the hurt that lies underneath that is a very healing experience for people to do that. Then they don't need the anger and rage. You know, anger anger is an emotion with a purpose in its own right, but it's very easily used because it's a power emotion. You know, when you're angry, you don't feel vulnerable anymore, and you're pushing someone back. You're Mm. pushing them away. So people use anger because they're hurting. It's very easy emotion to kind of, you know, eclipse hurt so that the person can stop the hurt and substitute power feelings instead. Yeah. But no healing takes place when hurt's dominating. No, that's that's true.
1: Yeah. That's been my experience too. So, Dr. Tom, what, for the benefit of our audience, is your best contact information for anybody that'd like to reach out and connect with you? Um,
2: My uh, website. Uh, the Lovelifelearningcenter.com. Uh, it's a blog website that I've been I've had up since 2012. I, I consider it a, a library of articles. There's about 300 some odd articles up there now on different topics about love life issues that people might reference and get some suggestions. I respond to all commentary that take place on the website. Um, so I have information about myself and my wife, we offer love life consultations by phone at the present time. At some point, hope soon it'll be in person as well. Um, sometimes people buy my book, which is available on Amazon, uh, Amazon.com. People can buy my book, uh, use the book to make changes. Some people feel like they might need a little bit of support. Uh, we can offer. Love Life Consultations to provide an interpersonal support as people make some of the changes that i talked about in the book. So numbers and, and email addresses are all on that website.
1: Excellent. And the, and the book is Learn to Love. For those listeners that would like to uh, buy a copy. Uh, the subtitle is important because there's I think there are other Learn to Love.
2: Learn to Love Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. If you put the whole thing in, it, it
1: goes directly to the site. Right. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right. So, Dr. Tom, to finally wrap things up, what what final words of wisdom would you like to impart before we close the podcast episode? Um, I want
2: to suggest that people think about working on their love lives, that working on their love lives is something everybody can do. uh, And I invite you to think about that. That's important. Don't let your love life, if it has a lot of disappointment in it, repetitive disappointment, don't let it stay that way. Look inside, think about what's going on, make some changes.
1: Yeah, because um, like with anything in life, it it can literally be turned around just by making one conscious decision around it, can't it?
2: Absolutely. Beautiful.
1: Okay, so thank you very much. This is Dr. Thomas Jordan, that I've had as my guest today. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom.
2: Thank you for inviting me, Lynn. Thank you very much. I've had a good time here. Thank you.
1: So to finally wrap up, I'll just leave you with the words as usual that true love starts with opening our hearts. And until next time, goodbye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hearts Entwined podcast. You can follow Lynn via the Facebook group Two Hearts Entwined or search Lynn Smith inspirational speaker at LinkedIn or email Lynn at hearts entwined dot com. That's L Y N at hearts entwined dot com. Remember, true love starts with opening our hearts.